Right, so our scripture reading this morning is from Matthew chapter 5, the first 12 verses, and we've been on the series for a while. So I invite you to read along with me, your Bible or in your electronic device, and I have this NIV version in front of me. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the poor in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemaker, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you, when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of God. Thanks, Eric. Thanks for the prayer and for reading the scriptures. If you were here with us last week, you know that we were in the previous beatitude. Uh, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And I made reference to a book, Gentle and Lowly, uh, which kind of explores the concept of meekness. This book, uh, we have 50, some have been distributed, but I had 50 copies uh, given to us. I kind of applied uh, for, for it and they were delivered. So they're available to you if you enjoy books and want to explore the content of this one and didn't get one last week. They should be out front somewhere in, in the lobby. So I just wanted to make sure you knew that. I hope it's helpful uh, sometimes to give you a little window into my own spiritual development to, to show you uh, a bit of a glimpse of my own walk with God and my own failings along the way. Uh, it was uh, uh, Monday morning, I, th I think, um, that I was praying through the Beatitudes. Uh, it seemed fitting to do that, and especially asking God to work those qualities uh, in, in me too. Uh, blessed are, are the poor in, in spirit, and I was literally praying that God would put me in a position to, uh, to have poverty of spirit. That is, that I'm not relying on myself, but I'm depending wholly and trusting on Him alone for everything. Uh, blessed, uh, blessed are the poor in spirit. Uh, Father, make me poor in, in spirit. Uh, and then praying uh, the next beatitude as well. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. 
you know, Father, just make, make me somebody who mourns over the right things uh, and things that are, are put wrong so that I can experience your comfort. And it's probably best when you're doing things like that not to have your phone nearby, but my phone was right next to me and it rang and it was my wife. This is a true story. This is literally after I prayed that. And she said, I'm stranded 25 minutes away in our van. And she told me what the, the little symbol was, the battery charging, not working or something. So quick internet search says alternator, you're, you know, you're running. And I called our mechanic and he said, don't, she can't drive there. She'll be stranded on I-71 or something like that too. Um, which, which, you know, is alarming in and of itself, but also I was due to teach a class in uh, just a handful of minutes. So doing the calculations of, no, I can't get there in time. It's the first real day of school. I got to... What can I do? And I found uh, a level of frustration arising inside of me. Um, also, a certain sense of how much is this going to cost? I don't know if anybody else's mind goes there when things break down. If I'm the only person who thinks, oh boy, another expense associated with things and who knows how much it's going to be, uh, you know, uh, a tow, Uber, nah. So, all that stuff. And... It took me a second to realize I had literally prayed just now for God to work certain qualities in me, and I was responding in a completely different way, like two, living in two different worlds. There's this spiritual world, it's hypothetical realm of who I want to be, and the reality, because if you remember, we were talking about blessed are the meek, and I, I suggested as we looked at that, how does God make meekness in us? Through trials. I, was, I didn't even get to blessed or the meek. And my responses were a little bit alarming. And, and I have to say, um, on the one hand, it took me a moment to realize, wow, God is literally answering this prayer right now. Um, and my responses are not in keeping with what I would desire them to be. But then also to be able to see that I was actually thinking about that and able to say, okay, Lord, be with me. Have mercy on me now. As we work through this, some, some situations got to be resolved. It's not like I can just live in this land of illusion. You're living in a place where a car is broken down. It needs to be. But my responses and my sorting through it and the process of embracing it in a different kind of way, though not perfectly, was directly informed by spending time in God's word and praying about those things. So, I, you know, when, when somebody comes up in front, I, I, I hope that helps you see a little bit how God is still working on me in a certain way, and I'm grasping, striving for these things, but I still wrestle with them, and yet there is a reality, a difference to me praying about these things and God graciously working on that in the context of my own life. And I find that for all of these Beatitudes, there's a couple of dynamics that are important to keep in mind. There are some present aspects and some future aspects. When I pray, for example, that, uh, that, that God would give me the, the kind of faith that responds in gentleness, um, there, there's, there's a reality even in that circumstance where it happened. But... I still wrestle, I still struggle, and I'm waiting for a time when this kingdom perspective is mine in full and totality, and I no longer have to wrestle with my responses that aren't in keeping with what God says a kingdom uh, citizen ought to be responding. Does that, does that make sense? There's a pit time when I'm not going to be struggling anymore, and there's a future aspect to the time when those who are 
mourning will be comforted in a way that there's no more tears. There's a present reality. I can mourn differently as a, as a, as a kingdom-dwelling citizen of heaven that people who aren't can't do. But there's a future fulfillment to that as well. And as you go through these Beatitudes, you also see there are some personal and some corporate aspects. In other words, you know, blessed are those who mourn. That's, that, there's a personal part to that. Like, I am mourning my own sin and my own loss. But these Beatitudes are actually written in the plural. Blessed are those who mourn. So that's why we read in the Bible, you know, mourn with those who mourn. That we're part of a body. The loss of one is the loss of the, of the many for us, too. That's what it means to be kind of one loaf baked together. So there's personal aspects, individual, but it's bigger than just that. It's, it's a corporate thing. It's a, it's a body issue. And it, it expands even just beyond members of this body who identify with God's kingdom to those who aren't, as we'll see in the passage today as well. So with all that in mind, let's just treat Matthew 5, 6 together today as we explore it just for a bit. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Hunger and thirst. But we can relate to that. When we talk about poverty of spirit, it takes some work to define what do you mean. We've kind of been doing that. What does it mean to be, uh, to be meek? What does it mean to mourn? Do we have to describe what it means to hunger and thirst? For anybody here today, I mean, you talk about a practical image that we can all relate to very readily. Basic needs that have to be met. And we get focused on meeting them in one way or another. And there's an increasing intensity associated with this. The longer you go without food and drink, the more you crave it. And the more intensely that you've been working or laboring, the more you need it. And the more you need it, the more you think about it. It becomes your drive and your focus and your desire. Ponderosa, anyone? Anybody thinking about eating right now or drinking? Maybe not. I mean, my stomach wakes up at 10. Yeah, breakfast, most important, fine. Nobody told my body that. Over the years, I just don't wake up hungry. Yeah, 10, 11, I'm starting to get a little bit hungry. And then when I get hungry and I feel the hunger pangs or thirst, you start thinking about it. And you start wondering, how am I going to, how am I going to fill this, this desire, this actual need? It's possible you've known times in your life when you're hungry and thirsting for things that you just can't afford. Or you're not in a place where you have access to what your mind is thinking. Boy, wouldn't it be great if you want a juicy hamburger from Red Robin. But you're in Mexico. Or China, they don't have red robins there. Or, or you can't afford it. It's there, but you can't get it. Uh, maybe you can't even get hamburger helper because you're in a place where you just can't afford anything. And maybe you hunger and thirst for things you can't buy or you don't even have access to get. Or perhaps you have enough resources to afford everything. And you can get it. And you feel, you know, you, you're filled your desire is fulfilled, but what happens? You want it again, and you want it more. And no matter how many resources you have, you'll never be totally satisfied and filled. There's a whole book about this called Ecclesiastes. Somebody who had access to everything had a craving and a desire for something empty inside to be filled, 
and chased everything, but it all became meaningless, like a chasing after the wind. Well, Jesus says in this beatitude, you can be filled. You can be sated if you are hungering and thirsting for the right things. You leverage that physical desire that you naturally have and let it point you to the deeper hunger and thirst of your soul. That's part of why people fast. Traditionally, over the, over the history of the church, and even Jesus, he says, when you fast, when you fast and you deny yourself the, the, the basic building blocks of like food and, and, and drink, perhaps, it stirs up a desire inside of you, but people say that you do that so that you can remind yourself, though you eat, you'll be hungry again. There's somebody who you can feast on and you'll never be hungry again. We forget that, so we remind ourselves physically by denying that so that our appetite for the spiritual truths is heightened and deepened. That's one of the reasons that fasting even exists. Hunger and thirst, Jesus says. If you want it to be sated, if you want to feel filled, then you hunger for the right thing. And Jesus tells us what it is. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Well, I thought the best summation of what this is picturing was uh, Scott McKnight who says, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness are those who love God and God's will with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. Because they love God, their appetites, instead of being sated by the pleasures of food, sensualities, passions, and lusts, are satisfied only in communion with God, knowing and doing God's will, and seeking the welfare of others. That's a summation, according to this individual, of what it looks like to pursue this picture of righteousness. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. A person who has a craving for God, whose laser focus is on pursuing him as the ultimate object of affection, and so Psalm 84.2 gives us a picture of this as well. Somebody in that space. My soul yearns, even faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. This psalmist's object of desire is to be in God's presence. I mean, what language? My soul yearns, even faints. It's such a desperate need for what? God's presence to be near him. The innermost part of this person's being, crying out for God, hungering and thirsting, as Jesus said, for righteousness. So what exactly does it mean to hunger and thirst for righteousness? The backdrop, of course, is the Old Testament, especially in the book of Matthew, which is written to a Jewish audience. And remember, the crowds have gathered around. Jesus is instructing his disciples, and others are listening in. And they would have known what came before in the books of Moses and the prophets. With that backdrop in mind, as Jesus talks about righteousness and builds a case for what it looks like even in other parts of Matthew, what Jesus seems to have in mind here is a couple of things. First, moral integrity. That is, if you're pursuing righteousness, you're hungry and thirsting for doing the right thing, being morally upright, 
reflecting the heart of God as he's expressed it in the laws that he's given to us, not so that we are restricted, but so that we have ab- freedom. I give this illustration all the time to my 14 and 15-year-old students who want to drive cars and be free. That's one of the reasons you want a driver's license is to be free. You can go anywhere. But in order to have that freedom, there are laws you need to obey to the road. And you can disobey them for a while, but do it long enough at some point, somebody's going to suffer. Either you'll hurt somebody yourself, or you'll get a license revoked or pay for it. And then, especially if parents have control over you, keys might be taken away, and how's your freedom looking now? But if you obey and, and constrain yourself to laws that have been agreed upon, that this is the way we flourish and function, you're going to have more and more freedom. Moral integrity acts a lot like that in God's kingdom. For example, Noah, you guys know him way back in Genesis. This is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. What a great picture of what righteousness looks like, a person of integrity. And there, were very, there wasn't anybody else walking like that way. He cared about the things of God. Uh, Job was described the same way in the land of Uz. There lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. That's what it looks like to have uh, a moral uprightness. Two examples, Noah and and Job, and they cared a lot about living life the way God had put it forward. Moral integrity. The satisfaction of a relationship with God unclouded by disobedience. You know, I've mentioned the anti-anti-anti-Christians before in my high school. And one of the reasons they had such disdain for people who claimed to be believers is because they weren't walking with moral integrity. They claimed to be, uh, when it was convenient, at youth group and in other contexts, followers of Christ, and they did very different things on the weekends. And that was not only confusing to people, but probably rightly uh, labeled hypocrisy. And it drove a lot of people from Christ. Hungering and thirsting for righteousness, moral integrity. But it means more than that. And again, reaching back into the Old Testament. Hungering and thirsting for righteousness means pursuing God's form of justice. If you care about righteousness, it's not just about your moral integrity. It's about justice, pursuing what is right in God's eyes. So we see that not just that individual focus on my personal relationship with God, That's part of it, but also a deep concern for the way that his heart and his justice is being worked out in public space. The prophets echo this refrain over and over again. We have 12 prophets saying the same thing over and over again as they look at God's people who claim to be walking with God, but their behavior is not reflecting that, not only with terms of a lack of moral integrity, but also a lack of concern for how their actions are affecting the people around them. Not only those in the house of God, but those in society as well. That's what the prophets are all about. Justice roll down on God's people because 
what they say they believe is not being acted out in the way that they treat others. And so you have that maybe well-known passage to you in, in the book of Micah, one of the prophets. You know, what does the Lord require of you? Isn't that a, this is such a great summation. You want to, what does God require of me? If you have a frame of mind like, what am I supposed to be doing, God? Oh, here's an answer. Act justly, love mercy, walk humbly with God. See, it includes the personal element. I'm walking humbly with God, but it's also a corporate out one too. Act justly. For a lot of churches, talking about justice is acting. It's not. That's talking. Do justice. And of course, what that looks like is a conversation that is, is ongoing, but it's not a negotiable one. In terms of the gospel, the good news of Christ, it's not an add-on. It's central. When he came to reconcile us, make us right, it wasn't just with God, it was with each other. And so this is not an add-on. This is at the heart of what it means to pursue righteousness, to hunger and thirst for righteousness. And this is the concern of many for the next generation. For those of you who observe and look, even at kind of church story to a new generation coming up uh, 20s and 30s saying does the church care at all about justice and struggling with some disillusionment because it doesn't always appear to be the case for issues that are of genuine concern so we have to latch on to the hunger and thirst for this kind of righteousness as well it's central to the gospel. I know that because Jesus, when the, the uh, prophecy of Isaiah was read, said it's fulfilled today in my hearing. And so much of the book of Isaiah is pointing to Christ and the suffering servant. And, and the prophet Isaiah uses imagery that drives this point home even more. He says in Isaiah 58, is this not the kind of fasting I have chosen? These people were fasting, denying themselves, looking spiritually awesome before God. This is what fasting looks like, to loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke. Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? When you see the naked, to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood. Isaiah is pressing this on the appearance of concern. They seem like they're concerned, but they're, they're, they're really not. And, and in fact, he says uh, before that in Isaiah 58, Shout it aloud, do not hold back, raise your voice like a trumpet, declare to my people their rebellion and to the descendants of Jacob their sins. For day after day they seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways, as if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of its God. They ask me for just decisions. They seem eager for God to come near them. Why have we fasted, they say, and you've not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves, and you have not noticed? Here's a people saying, we've fasted, we're doing all the right stuff, we don't see any of the benefits. Aren't you paying attention to this at all? And Isaiah goes on to respond to them. In God's word saying, yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please and exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. 
You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. You're doing all the right stuff externally, but God knows your heart. You've got processes in place where it looks like you're denying yourself, and on that very day, you're exploiting people to put money in your pockets. And so you want to look good to God, but you're just like everybody else. And you wonder why I'm not hearing you. This is to the Old Testament people of God who live in a space and time where they have opportunity to practice real righteousness, but it's feigned. It's not. And I'm guessing there were probably anti, anti, anti-Christians around them too. Saying, oh, it doesn't make sense. If you really believe that, then your quality of life should be affected, not just yours, but the treatment of others as well. That's hungering and thirsting for righteousness. And if you enter into this world, it's, it's almost as if we cannot really attain this level of righteousness even if we desire it. Don't you long in your better moments for this? Like, that sounds great. I want to loose the cords and, and, and do what's right and just. And even if I don't understand what that means, I long for it. But you fail? Or you want to have some measure of moral integrity? Yes, I'm going to be an awesome husband this week. I'm going to speak only kind words to my children that give life and allow them to flourish like little saplings into oaks of righteousness. <laughs> right? That's what you long for. I long for that. It's then why do I speak harshly or, or, or a snarky comment or something that cuts them down or a sideways glance that says, yeah, I know what you really mean about that? Doesn't it feel like we can't do this? Can, can we really be filled since our best strivings will never measure up and the motives are, of our heart are so shifty? And the answer is yes. <laughs> the answer is yes. Jesus says we can. And this gets us to another, another righteousness. And that you're not the first person to struggle with that. You know, this guy named Martin Luther struggled with that. You guys know his story. He was a priest. He wanted to please God and everything. But he was so sensitive in the spirit that he realized, I can't ever do it. I seem to fail at every single turn. And he was probably more righteous in the, uh, like, let's look up the column. Okay. He's pretty righteous. I'm not very righteous. He was more righteous than you or I. He set aside his life to pursue the things of God and always came up short. And this burdened him greatly. He wanted this. He was hungering and thirsting for righteousness. And he felt like, I'm not getting filled. It's not, I'm not, I'm still hungry and thirsting for more. I only disappoint. And so that's why, if you know the story, when he opened up the, the gospel, the book of Romans, and in the chapter 1, verse 17, and he read this, it set his soul free. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. And Martin Luther realized that all the strivings he was doing will never measure up. And that what was required of him was not to set aside those strivings, but to realize they could only be met in the person of Christ. That's exactly what Paul starts saying as he unpacks this and he says, we're all sinners, we all fall short of the glory of God. There is no one righteous, no, not one, with an asterisk. 
Because there actually is one. And that is why Christ came. In the gospel, a righteousness is revealed from first. Faith in what? Faith in our moral uprightness? Faith in our pursuit of justice? No. Faith in Christ. He is the object of our faith. Hunger and thirst for righteousness, yes, but it can only be met fully in Christ, who is described by John as bread come down from heaven. I am the bread of life. In John chapter 4, he's described as the living water. You thirst. Only I can quench that thirst. I am the living water. And then Paul says, he's our righteousness. God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that in him we could become the righteousness of God. So it's not as if that means we don't care about being morally upright or pursuing justice. It just recognizes that actually we will never be able to do it perfectly. And once we are driven to the person of Christ and find our full satisfaction in him, then we adopt his heart. And what was the heart of Christ? My food is to do what? The will of God. And so if you're a citizen of God's kingdom, that's your food also. It's to do the will of God. If you love me, you obey my commands. And you see that, of course, you can't ever do that. So you come to Christ, who then turns you into his kingdom again. And it's this glorious reality of being filled because Christ himself is righteous and then being pointed back to this. And you can see then the present reality of our hope only in Christ, but also the future fulfillment where there's a day when our strivings cease. And we are no longer hungry and thirsting for something that can wax and wane like on a Monday morning when tomorrow you wake up and get a phone call that something's gone wrong. And the great thing about this is the price was paid. You know, Isaiah talks us about this as well. If you have a sensitivity to this, he says, Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. You who have no money, come, buy, and eat. It's not like you have to accumulate enough good works to come and then say, okay, now I'm in the kingdom. You don't have enough resources to do that. You feel empty. You feel, feel like you have nothing to contribute to the kingdom. Great. You're in the perfect position. Come, you're thirsty. You have no money. Buy, eat, buy, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good and you will delight in the richest affair. Who was the one that Isaiah was talking about? The suffering servant. The one who paid the full price, whose body was given as we take it, the bread on the cross, whose blood was shed as we take it, as we eat, and we remind ourselves in communion. That's a part of how we're feeding our souls and reminding ourselves that our only hope in righteousness is in Christ. But that becomes a very source for us to pursue it. Do you see that? Both present and future, personal and corporate, all in the person of Christ. This is why we love him. And adore him. This is why we call out to him. And this is why, hopefully, as you go forward this week and, and tomorrow morning, Lord, 
uh, you know, make me hunger and thirst for righteousness. That's part of what it means as you live and walk that out as a citizen of God's kingdom. Father, I pray for those who are thirsty, they'd come to the waters. Stir in us a deep thirst, a deep hunger for the things of God. And allow us to see again that this is something you offer for us for free. It came at a cost. And Christ himself, the only one who is truly righteous, <laughs> paid the price and then offers freely in the good news this righteousness that only he alone can attain. I pray that would be for us who, who know that righteousness, um, that our hunger, our thirst would be for, for, for this moral integrity, for the pursuit of justice in the, in the week ahead as well. But that for those maybe who don't, that they'd have a glimpse of the beauty of the offer of the gospel in the person of Christ today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.